0: Usually, on the first day of a retreat, the Dharma talk is a very welcomed event. Uh, you can relax for, <laughs> for a little while. You know, the first day of a retreat can often be you know, very tiring because we have to put in a lot of effort to bring our minds back, to really gather a sense of presence and a connection with being here we come in from our daily lives uh, with so much uh, stimulation, so much accumulation you know, we sit down on the pillow and it's all there and so we practice the technique here to come back, to keep coming back, and sometimes this can feel so relentless, can't it, you know, when particularly before there's some uh, momentum or energy that builds from the concentration from our practice. So. I hope that uh, you can relax right now. That's the, that's the point for these dharma talks, so, so you can really receive the teachings that will be given now. I want to begin with sharing, I guess this is a, a Zen poem, or I like to think of it more as a kolon. A kolon is a Japanese word for a spiritual question that points us to an inquiry, a deep inquiry into uh, questions about uh, enlightenment and, and freedom. And this is one uh, a poem that ha- I'm, I think that many of you have probably heard this one before, but this is one that continually informs me in my practice. It's The simple words reflect back to me uh, uh, something that I feel is worth we're thinking about. The poem is Before Zen, mountains are mountains. During Zen, mountains are celestial beings and dancing spirits. And then after Zen, or after we realize Zen, then, then mountains are mountains again. And this just continually informs me. Because as much as I want to have transcendent experiences in my meditation, I want something to happen so that I feel uh, released in some way from how I know myself, from the, the, the burdens that I carry in my life. That it, This, this co-on, this question, or this reflection brings me right back into the way things are. Mountains are mountains whether we are before Realization or after Realization, it is the same. And there is a deep reflection here for us. It really points that each step along the way is necessary, but actually, what really changes for us? What changes for us? Do things really go back to the way they were before? as we carry along the way? How can it be? How could it be that things are exactly the same after realization? What really changes for us? I want to talk tonight about this subtle shift that occurs for us, because I think that anywhere, anywhere along the path this is a very useful reflection for us, something that can um, loosen some of the structures that we uh, carry in the way that we perceive things. In fact, what really changes for us is really just a subtle shift of our perception or a subtle shift of our view. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to talk about this way that we view things because I don't, uh, maybe some of you are familiar with the teachings of the Buddha of the Eightfold Noble Path which is one of the uh, four uh, uh, great noble truths of the Buddha. And in the Eightfold Noble Path, the first factor on the path is called wise view or right view. And it's not an accident that it's the first one, because when we understand the way that we view things or the way that we perceive things, this is what gives rise to an understanding about all the other factors. So how we view, how we see, how we perceive is very important in our understanding of meditation. Because the way that we're perceiving things is so critical, then this is why it's very important that we begin to quiet our minds. We begin to settle our mind. Because when our mind is restless, the way that probably many of you have perceived your minds today... You know, it very, seems very difficult to often to contain the mind, to bring the mind home or bring the mind back. The mind seems very restless, and that restless mind can be like like wind blowing on the river. We can, when we see the wind blowing and the surface of the river, the water gets very restless. We can think that's the whole river, and we can forget what's happening at the quiet depths of the river or when the wind is blowing on the surface of the ocean. We can forget about the very still and quiet depths of the ocean. And so the meditation helps us, gives us some tools and some techniques to begin to understand how we can quiet that restlessness of our mind. As the mind settles, as the mind begins to quiet just a little bit, we, pe- we can begin to understand where the real problem lies. And the real problem lies in the way that we see things. Last night I referred to the word vipassana, which, which is often translated as insight, or to see things clearly. To see things clearly. So as the mind starts to quiet, we begin to see things more clearly. Our view starts to shift. Mm-hmm there was a teaching that the Buddha gave to one of his disciples which points to this very thing. The Buddha gave this teaching to his disciple, Bahiya. And to Bahiya, he said, you need to listen and see if you can catch the teaching in this. He said, the Buddha said, in the scene, there is only the scene." In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So here the Buddha is really pointing to the simplicity of our experience and how we often make our experience so much more than it actually is. In the sensed, there is just the sensed. In the heard, there is just the heard. Rarely do we have that kind of simple experience. You know, we're often so wrapped up with our worries and our regrets and our plans and our fantasies and our wants and our uh, dislikes and our hmm, our sorrows and all that we're carrying in our minds. So rarely are we just hearing what we're hearing or seeing what we're seeing. The mind can make things so much more complex. We think, we may think that we're present with what's going on, but we're actually still relating to what's going on through our memories or through, the, through our associations, through our past, through our fantasies, through our projections. We rarely are just right there with what's occurring. This is an example we have right here, the bell, you know. This the simplicity of hearing the bell. In the herd, there is just a herd. But you know, when we come to a retreat, uh, the, the bell becomes something that carries a great deal of association for us. You know, when we hear that bell, it means we get to move. You know, it's like the end of the pain, the end of having to pay attention to my mind, the end of having to struggle with my, uh, uh, my body or whatever it is that's occurring in the moment. So that bell can carry a great association for us. Mm-hmm. So we may not hear the bell at all. We just hear, Great! The sitting's over. You know? Just the sort of the intimation of the bell. But how often do we actually just let that sound come in and we are very present with it and that becomes the next thing in our experience. Do we hear the bell or are we just sort of reacting to what we Uh, associate with that bell. The truth is that that bell, every time we ring it, is a completely different experience. Sometimes we hit it softly, sometimes we hit it harder, sometimes we may hit it a little bit at an angle. It always has a different resonance, a different uh, tone. But yet we often just get caught up either in the association at the end of the sitting and we feel that relief, or we may even have the thought, oh, it's just the bell. You know, and I know what the bell sounds like, so we don't even really have to pay attention to it or listen to it. It's, it's not relevant. It's not important. So it just becomes extraneous in our field of attention, hmm. not even bringing that much awareness to it. Today, James did an eating meditation, and he was talking about uh, those of you who stayed the, eating a raisin I mean, how many times have we either eaten a raisin or, you know, mouthfuls of food, but have we tasted that food? Today, people tasted a raisin, maybe for the first time in their life. And James was asking people, what was your experience like of that raisin? Have you ever had this kind of experience with this raisin? And so many people responded that it was very different than the way they've ever related to a raisin before. So simple, yet this is, this is really available for us. The concept so easily gets caught in our memory. The concept is in our memory. We get attached to the concept in our memory. And then we're actually perceiving the experience through the concept or the memory rather than the thing itself like with the raisin. Oh, I know what a raisin tastes like. In a more complex way, when we have pain in our body, we might be, if we're not paying close enough attention, we may just be relating to pain as a concept of what it's been like in the past and how horrible it's been or uncomfortable it's been and how much I don't like it and what it's going to mean if I sit with this pain and how it's going to, uh, how it's going to increase if I stay here. Are we actually feeling the pain? Are we actually feeling the unpleasantness that's arising in the body? Or are we caught up in our whole idea about what's actually happening? So the mindfulness practice asks us just to feel it, just to feel that sensation, see what's actually there, see it clearly for what it actually is. We come into a whole new relationship. You know, we usually do this with people. It's so easy to uh, get caught up in our ideas about the past in the way we've related to our friends or our family, our partner, our children. We're so often relating to them as our uh, memory of our, our ideas about the past rather than who they actually are in that moment. Because in every moment we're bringing something new to the relationship when we're meeting somebody. But if we're not really present, are we able to really meet that person in that newness, in that freshness, in that moment? As we begin to understand this and let go of the way, the views, the projections, the ideas that we're carrying, we meet the experience, we meet the person, we meet the experience, whatever it is, in such a new way, in a fresh way. I want to tell you about one woman uh, who was on a retreat sometime uh, in this past year. And she came into an interview, and she told me a story that very much uh, relates to this, this situation. She was a caretaker for her elderly mother, and she had been um, living with her at this time. And there were, of course, many difficulties with her mother. And her mother was complaining and she was very negative and, and this woman was very frustrated with her. And when she was on the retreat, her mind began to settle down just a little bit. And at one time she started to actually remember she saw herself in relationship to her mother and she saw herself lecturing to her mom. You know, really frustrated and lecturing and saying and trying to get her mom to see how much she really had to be grateful for and why she's so negative about everything when she had so many blessings in her life and why can't she be more grateful and her mom couldn't see what she was trying to say and her mom would get more upset and then she'd get frustrated and this dynamic was just going on and on and on she didn't see any way out of it she saw that it was quite rigid but as her mind started getting quiet she realized that maybe she could perceive her mom, she could see her mom in a different way. That maybe she didn't have to just keep um, fixating on her faults and her negativity, but maybe she could actually focus on her good qualities. She could actually start to just shift that view a bit, and, and not that she had to fabricate her mom in a way that she actually wasn't, but just rather than just seeing the negative she could just start seeing the positive and she started actually seeing all these wonderful things about her mother that they were really there and as she reflected on this she could see that this response this way of relating to her mom was actually going to lead to much more happiness not only happiness for herself but or her mother as well, and the dynamic between the two. It was very inspiring to be with her because she could really see where she was holding on to that view. She could really see where she was holding on to her negativity about her mom and that she really needed to get her mom to change. And that she was really reinforcing this sense of separation and this sense of difficulty. But she started to let go of that way of perceiving, that way of viewing. And she started to feel happier and less rich than herself. There was really a wonderful opening that started to happen for her right there while she was on the retreat. And so that's an example of if we can begin to reflect on the ways that we are getting caught, the way that we're holding on quite tightly to the way that we're viewing either ourselves or another person or a situation, as we begin to let go, as we begin to soften that attachment, we actually start to feel more ease and a great deal of happiness starts to arise in our heart. There's another story I want to tell you about another woman who uh, was on another retreat. And she also was describing a situation where she started to shift the way she was feeling about herself. She was telling me about how for years she was being held back in her practice. She felt like, like it wasn't really moving for her and that she felt quite suppressed in her conditioning as a child. She grew up in England and she really wanted more spontaneity in her life. She wanted to feel freer. She wanted to feel... Uh, you know that 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 sense of uh, you yeah, know that sense of spontaneity. But she was actually afraid because she didn't fully trust the practice that if she became more of an observer as we as sometimes people have this miscon- misconception, that she would detach from her experience and that would make her more rigid, which isn't the case. So she started to describe about this ball in her chest, this tight ball that she felt kept her rigid, kept kept her closed in. So I said to her, I said, just to lean into the sensations in your chest, just to feel those sensations without trying to get rid of them, and what's there? So as she began to feel more of that ball, that tight ball that she said was there for as long as she can remember, as she started to feel that, She she said, yeah, there is a protective layer there around my heart, but actually that's been very necessary for me. Having that there has actually helped me in the world, it's helped me feel some protection from a fairly uh, uh, threatening kind of world that I was living in. And she just stayed with that sensation, and as as, as she kept feeling it, she started to feel much more caring towards herself, much more loving towards herself and actually said, oh yeah, I'm actually okay. I'm actually okay just with this feeling in my chest. It doesn't have to change. I don't have to change. Even with that ball in my chest, yeah, and she started to feel much more relaxed, much more at ease. Again, it was just to shift that view. She was viewing it as if it was keeping her stuck, keeping her rigid in herself. She wasn't... Seeing it, that was something that she could actually um, hold with more of a a caring, a loving embrace, which was really where the rigidity was. It was in thinking that it was bad or wrong, or she had to change, or she had to be different in some way. But coming into that sense of, oh yeah, I am okay, I can be caring towards myself, even like this, that was where the, the happiness started to arise. She kept fixating on that sensation as evidence that she had a problem and that she was stuck and that something had to be fixed. And as she let go of that view, she let go of that idea about herself. She, she let go of the idea that this is who I am, somebody who's suppressed and rigid and unable to be spontaneous, just started to loosen, started to soften. The interesting thing is that in the room I was at, um, in the teacher room, somebody had uh, put in a, a vase with, um, it was a dozen, actually a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Very beautiful. But these on these roses, for some reason, somebody had tied purple streamers onto each rose, so that it was actually a bouquet of beautiful red roses with all these kind of uh, uh, fairly wild, bright purple streamers. And and at that, at that time, while she was talking about this, I looked over at the vase and I said, oh, yes, I want you to have one of these roses, but please look and see that this rose does not need all these purple streamers on it, that the rose in itself is very beautiful. And that, in a way, this is what we try to do. We try to somehow reshape ourselves or or put things on top or fix ourselves in some way because we don't feel, we don't sense into the natural beauty, the natural ease that we already are. So I gave her one of these roses and I said, but you have to take the purple streamers off so that you really can see uh, the beauty in this rose that's being reflected to you. Now, somehow we don't get you know, everything that we're putting on top of our experience to make things much more complicated, and which somehow distorts the essential beauty that's right there in the experience itself. But this is really mostly how we live our lives. You know, we relate to ourselves, we relate to others, we relate to situations with somewhat distorted ideas about things. And it's not bad that we do this. It's not wrong that we do this. It's basically that we don't know that we do it. Until we come into um, a reflective uh, awareness practice, we may not have the ability to turn back our attention and actually look at the mind, look at ourselves to understand what we're doing to complicate ourselves or to complicate situations well, as we begin to understand we can begin to let go we can begin to un- untangle ourselves from this thicket of views the Buddha uses that that phrase uh, the thicket of views that we get involved in. Right now maybe it might be helpful for you to just take a moment and reflect, a second and see if there's some view that you are holding on to right now about yourself Mm -hmm. or about another person Mm -hmm. some view that seems to be very present for you right now just one view Mm -hmm. anything that you feel feels quite true, quite believable. Now, if you have that view, I just want you to look to see if you are attached to that view. And attached to that view means that you really believe this view is the truth of the situation, whether it's about yourself or another person. Because the problem is really not in the view itself, because we are going to have views, we're going to have perceptions about things. But the problem arises when we are holding on to that as the only truth of the matter. And if you are holding on to it, if you really do believe that's true, right now see if you can let go of holding on to that just let go of the attachment to it and hold it lightly. Hold that view lightly. And holding it lightly means that there may be the possibility of another way of viewing the situation. The Buddha said a very, I think really, a very amazing thing. We have many um, discourses of the Buddha from the time 2,500 years ago when the Buddha was teaching. And when I've been reading his text, there's one thing that really, many things that jump out, but this really jumped out for me. And the Buddha said, he said, For, for in whatever way you conceive the situation, whether it's yourself or another situation, the fact is other than that the fact is other than that. Whatever way that you are conceiving, the fact is other than that. I think that's remarkable. Now, what if you just take the views that have arisen today <laughs> about yourself in the meditation or yourself here on the retreat or other people here on the retreat or, or memories that have come up about other people, and what if you just say, okay, the fact is other than that. What's that do? What does that do to your, the way that you're holding your mind?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Doesn't it open just amazing possibilities? As mm-hmm. we start to hold all that much more lightly about what we're doing here, how other people are here, how the retreat is, you start to hold that kind of lightly, huh? We usually take our thoughts to be so real, you know, that what we're thinking is the way it is, and these thoughts are what begin to shape our reality. They give rise to our reality. This is a this is a joke, and it's one of my favorite because it really points to this again. I'm not so great at telling jokes, so I hope that I pull this off. <laughs> In ancient times, there was a samurai who wanted to see the Zen master. So he went to the monastery, and he asked permission, and and the attendant went and asked the Zen master and said, it's okay, you can let the samurai in. And the samurai came in, and the, the Zen master respectfully received him. But when the samurai actually met him and looked at him, he started to abuse the Zen master, and he said, you are a pig. You look like a pig, you dress like a pig, you walk like a pig. And the Zen master, being the Zen master, actually didn't really move. He wasn't very shaken by this. He just replied, oh, you look like a Buddha. You dress like a Buddha. You walk like a Buddha. You are a Buddha the samurai was very surprised, you know. He was very proud of being a samurai, but he didn't know he was worthy of being a Buddha. And he, and he asked the Zen master, why, why did you call me a Buddha? And the Zen master replied, a pig sees pigs and a Buddha sees Buddhas.
1: Laughter That's the way, <laughs>
0: that's the way it works, you know? How is our mind turned? You <laughs> know? Uh. There's another example, he um, said when a, when a thief walks into a barber shop, the thief sees the pockets, not the hair. When the barber walks into the barber shop, he sees the hair. You know, So where is our mind turned?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What are we seeing? What are we perceiving? Mm-hmm. We have to be somewhat careful, I think, as we start to awaken, as we start to understand the trickiness of our mind. is another example. Um, I read this in a book um, I think you're probably all familiar with Dr. Deepak Chopra. Um, They say he's a recognized authority on how consciousness affects our bodies. And he says he's reported on an experiment conducted among the, the Tarahumara Indians in Mexico, a group known for their running ability. And this is supposed to be true. This is really true. Routinely, certain members of the tribe ran the equivalent of a marathon or more every day. This is between groups. The most intriguing aspect of their culture, however, was that they believed that the best runners were those in their 60s. A team of researchers showed that the best lung capacity, cardiovascular fitness, and endurance were indeed found in the runners in their 60s. Dr. Chopra points out that for this belief to translate into physical reality, the entire tribe had to believe it. And then he goes on to say, in our ageist culture, many women, instead of believing in their capacity to remain strong, attractive, and vital throughout their lives, instead come to expect their bodies and minds to deteriorate with age. This is the belief. Thus, we as a society collectively create a pattern of thoughts, behaviors, and fears that make it that much easier to manifest the worst physical reality. Isn't that fascinating? How much of it? I mean, this is an example of more of a collective belief. You know? what, what are we even colluding in, in terms of the collective views that we're holding together?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When we hold on to our views, you can see that they are actually very limited. They keep us from being able to be in the experience in a more whole way. And we, we get caught in only one way of looking, limited, we feel confined, we are um, narrowed by this view. When we come into meditation, it helps us take a step back in a way. We, we kind of step, step back. We're not holding on so tightly to what our minds are telling us. And as we step back, as we open a bit, this brings some space in the mind, a spacious quality to that which we are engaged in. And this space, the space, the spaciousness is what helps us to let go. It helps us to let go. We don't hold on so tightly. This is another, um, found this article in a newspaper a couple weeks ago and uh, in the Seattle Times. And it was actually, it's about, um, it's about a, a beauty contest. And this is, I'm going to read bits of this. Here's how Isabel Zizensinya and fellow contest- contestants got ready for the big West Africa beauty pageant. They rested, they did their hair, and ate. Big bowls of porridge, greens, fried plantains, and the like. Tipping the scales at up to 200 pounds, they ate all the while with compassion for those with other scrawnier notions of beauty, those misguided Miss Universes, those Miss World Wannabes. One of the contestants said, one of your Misses, she follows a no-food diet. She's skinny. Her stomach is very flat here. She's bony here, she said, her hand fluttering up, on, up to her own rounded collarbone. In Africa, we eat well to keep our shape. If ever there was an occasion to mull over what you think is beautiful and why, Queen of Ivory Coast could be it. Sponsors made clear that they were looking for that classic guitar shape, specifically as the pageant rule book noted in detail, unblushing description of the ideal queen, a rounded, full-fleshed bottom, well-developed, and in movement when the woman moves. It's not by chance the pageant was in West Africa, where sin is not yet entirely in. Fat farms flourish here, not for the shedding of pounds, but for the getting of them. See, it's a whole different view. A whole different view of things. Outside of Africa, Americans and others spend billions of dollars to try to work off, diet off, and suck up fat. For much of Africa, however, plump still means prosperity. Sin represents everything you don't want, poverty, AIDS, and other diseases, misery, and hunger. One person said, if we see a woman like one of those Misses Universes, we think she doesn't get enough to eat, or maybe she's sick, or maybe she's mistreated by her husband. Queen of Ivory Coast started in 1999 to reinforce Africans' own traditions of beauty. African women were getting a complex from the ads they see on TV their collective view being eroded. Mm -hmm. The strong cultural message from the West about our ideas of beauty, here we're starting to make some inroads into that. Mm -hmm. Just how we're holding it, how we perceive it, what we get caught in in our own mind. Maybe the fact is other than that the fact is other than that. When we remember the importance of a spacious awareness, then the view isn't the only thing that's informing us. It's not the whole picture. Have you started to sense that? That what your mind is telling you is not the whole picture? You know, particularly when you come into a retreat and, the, and even, you know, maybe there'll be many moments of rest, restless mind and chattering mind and agitated mind, but there's also the moments when the mind just opens a bit, there's a spacious quality that comes in and you connect and you see and experience the nature or another person or yourself in a whole new way. And the picture changes and you see and you touch that there's the possibility of something more than the way our minds are defining our reality. When the mind is not bound up and identified with a view, then it's a non-attached mind. It's a, a free mind, an open mind that allows us to see more clearly, to see the way Things are. And this really brings us to the simplicity of the moment, then. We are able to meet the moment with that simplicity, with that immediacy. Just this moment. Just this moment. And what seems so solid, maybe in one moment, the way that we're viewing something or the way we were relating something, what seems so solid begins to loosen. It begins to shake a little bit, and it begins to lose that solidity, that substance. We relate with more of that spacious quality in that moment. We might even say then, as things start to break up, as things start to loosen, is anything really there in the way that we knew it to be? What can we say when the mind is really free, when the mind is not holding on even to a concept, even to a concept of bell? What is that? (laughs) When we're not even letting a thought arise about it or a concept arise about it, what is it? It has a whole different experience when we just allow it to be what it is. The, the sense of the thingness of bell starts to dissolve, fades away. Mm-hmm. In the herd, there's just the herd. Mm-hmm. But even though that sense of thinness fades away, we can't say there's nothing there at all. In that moment of hearing the bell, there's a fullness that arises in that moment. It's rich, it's full, it's, it's complete, it's total. Nothing else has to be there in that moment. And when we start to lose our attachment to these associations, these loaded associations, these projections, these ideas, we're not so caught caught up in the substance of how we know things to be, we begin to lose our dependency on these objects to bring us some kind of lasting fulfillment, lasting satisfaction. They are just what they are. We don't have the, the attachment, the holding, the dependency onto these things. There's a Pali word, two words, uh, sukha, and that means a transcendent happiness, a happiness that is no longer dependent on the things of this world. We're no longer holding on to the things of this world, but we allow the things to arise, to express themselves, and to pass away, to be free we lose our dependence and in this way we become independent really we become independent because we're no longer grasping after we're no longer needing things to be a particular way but we can rest into, we can fall back into allowing things to be as they are just as they are in any moment of experience this is this is what we are beginning to taste what we're beginning to touch Mm -hmm. the non clinging mind the mind that can be free with all things as they appear and as they disappear this is one of my favorite poems Mm -hmm. expresses the sense of freedom in all things This is from a 20th century Eskimo woman. She says, The great sea has set me in motion, set me adrift, moving me like a weed in the river. The sky and the strong wind have moved the spirit inside me till I am carried away trembling with joy. The great sea has set me in motion. There's no, no holding in that. There's no fixation in that. The great sea has set me in motion, set me adrift, moving me like a weed in the river. So as we start to let go of, of, of some of our attachments, some of our, our worries, our concerns, our fears, our, you know, just a little bit, just a little bit, Many of us in here are, are dealing with some very challenging issues in our life. You know? We're not saying that all of that just dissolves, all that fades away. That would be um, too uh, surrealistic. It's not like that.
1: You
0: know? It's just that we're not so, so fixated around it all anymore. We're not, we're not feeling the suffering caused by our own attachment. But we, we can start to hold things a little bit more lightly in our lives. We hold the view about ourselves more lightly. We have a thought that arises, Oh, I can't do this, you know. I just keep getting caught. I keep um, falling asleep. My mind is restless. I I don't even know why I came here to meditate. Just, okay, let it go. Just hold it lightly. (laughs) Come back to feeling my seat on the... My bottom on the seat, feel my my feet on the ground, just the breath breathing. It's just very simple. Mm-hmm. So as we as we continue, as we begin to, as we continue to practice, we just we learn how to hold it all. with a much different much different way, in a much different way. Mm-hmm. So our mind begins to quiet down as we continue to practice, as we continue to meditate. We start to touch that vastness, that, that which is much bigger, much larger than what our, the way our small little minds are defining, thing, defining things. This is from Huang Po, a fourth-century Zen patriarch of, of China. Said, let the mind together with its world be quietened down to a perfect state of tranquility. Let thought be cast into the mystery of quietude. When the mind is tranquilized in its deepest abode, its entanglements are cut asunder. So we just let the mind, we do the practice, keep coming back, keep coming back, walk in the silence, be in the silence not hold on to the things of the mind so much, things of the heart, and let the silence inform us. Let the silence let the mind start to quiet. And then we begin to touch things, touch things that we could never imagine with our mind, start to know something that the mind could never fabricate. And we begin to touch the mystery of things, I'll end with this quote from Ajahn Chah, one of the great uh, meditation masters from Thailand. His advice to us tonight. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become quieter and quieter in any surroundings. It will become still like a clear forest pool. Then all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool. You will see clearly the nature of all things in the world. You will see many wonderful and strange things come and go. But you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Let's sit quietly for a few minutes.